Welcome to Neville Goddard Radio with your host, Barry Peterson. Join us as we listen to some of Neville Goddard's best lectures on scriptural interpretation, imagination, and the promise. Most of these lectures have never been recorded or released on the internet until now. We will be delving into the works of Neville Goddard, Freedom Barry, and Frank Carter for the first time and only available here on Neville Goddard Radio. So sit back, put your feet up, and get ready to unleash your imagination with one of America's greatest mystics. The purpose of life, to fulfill the Word of God. I want to thank you for your many letters. I can't tell you how helpful it is to this group that you would share with us your wonderful experiences. So tonight I will take one and then tell you two or three of my own to add to the interpretation of it. As you know, if you come here often, we are here for one purpose, to fulfill God's Word, which Word is Scripture. We simply fulfill Scripture. Oh, we can accomplish everything we want to, really, in this world, but the purpose in life is to fulfill the Word of God. As we are told, My word shall not return unto me void. It must accomplish that which I purposed and prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah 55.11 Well, we are the Word, and so we fulfill the entire book. Now a lady wrote this letter, which she gave me on Friday night. She said, Recently I have been having great difficulty in bringing back to memory my dreams, but this one was the most difficult thing I ever encountered. I knew that I had to surface, and it seemed like an endless depth of utter darkness through which I came, having had the experience. I am holding on to the memory image of what I had experienced, because I felt I must bring it back and tell it to you. I knew that if I would let it go, let the memory of it go, I would quickly surface and find myself in my body lying on my bed. But I said, no, I must hold on to the memory of what has just happened. And so holding on to the memory, it seemed to be like the diver who simply plunged too, too deep, and I thought I could never make the surface. Through this utter darkness I am coming, and I wondered if I would ever make it. This is the experience, she said. I stood before Jerusalem's gates, these enormous wooden gates, and naturally the high, high walls. I was thrilled beyond measure as I stood there before Jerusalem's gate, and my thrill turned to chagrin when I realized that they were closed. Then suddenly I found myself on a very high hill clothed in a body of light. The light radiated from me in all directions. It seemed that the light was life-giving. I animated things. I gave life to things. It just simply radiated from me. It illuminated a part of a certain far-distant structure on earth, and in the distance I saw the whole earth in its curvature, as though I stood in space in some spaceship. The whole thing was curved, the whole earth. I'm looking on it, and I'm radiant light giving life to objects. And I knew that I could arrange all the things that I saw if I so desired, but I also knew that everything was ordered as it should be. Then I said, now I must get back and tell this to Neville. And then the struggle began. I thought I would never make it. When I came back, there must have been a certain reluctance on my part to return. On the other hand, I am glad I did, because now I feel that I do not wish to depart this life until I have experienced the descent of the dove. But I knew I need not have returned. And yet everything was ordered, but everything— and here she stood at the gates of Jerusalem. Now, in a book called Looking at Modern Painting, 
There is a chapter on Max Beckman, who is a modern artist who does symbolic art. In this he said, I awoke and yet continued dreaming, and I saw William Blake, the noble emanation of an English genius. He looked like some super-terrestrial patriarch, and he waved friendly greetings. And then he said to me, Do not let yourself be intimidated by the horror of the world. Everything is ordered and correct and must fulfill its destiny in order to attain perfection. Seek this path, and you will attain from your own ego a deeper perception of the eternal beauty of creation. You will attain an ever-increasing release from that which now seized you, sad or terrible. Then he finally awoke now from this state, and here was William Blake telling him of the order, of the perfection of everything, and he has to experience it. It was in keeping with her experience. Everything seemed ordered and as it should be, although she knew that if she desired she could rearrange the order. But why? When everything is ordered and perfect as it should be only for man to experience it. Now let me give you an experience of mine that happened when I was in my twenties. This night I found myself in the presence of two, above me the most heavenly, beautiful woman that man could ever conceive. Everything that man could ever conceive in that of woman, here was the personification of it, and below me everything that was horrible, a hairy, monstrous thing that would resemble, if I would take any animal on earth, it would be an ape or a gorilla or a combination of the two. The hair was brown, it was completely covered in hair as a gorilla. I looked at this heavenly creature, and then I heard this guttural voice coming from this beast, and the animal said, Mother. Well, I lost my temper, and I pummeled it, that it would dare to call this beautiful creature its parent. But it gloated on violence, and as I beat it, it seemed to grow. It thrived on violence. I kept on pummeling it, and it kept on growing in strength as I did to it such violent acts. Then I realized that this was my creation, and so was this beautiful creature. They're my emanations. Here is the embodiment of every evil that I've ever done, all the violence of mine, and here is the personification of every noble, lovely, kind deed that I have ever done. And now they both confront me. I turn from the noble being to this monstrous creature. There was no one present with whom I could make some contract, so I swore by myself, in fulfillment of Scripture, the twenty-second chapter of Genesis, I took my vow to myself, that if it took me to eternity I would redeem this monster, verse 16. And as I resolved to redeem this monster, regardless of the length of time it would take me, before my very eyes it melted, dissolved as though some heat had been placed upon it. It got smaller, smaller, and left not one little spot that ever existed. But as it dissolved, all the misused energy that went into the shaping of that monster returned to me, and I have never felt so powerful. I felt like infinite might as this misused energy was returned to me. It was not lost. It was simply held there in a horrible shape to confront me at the moment in time as I traveled the path. So this night I came upon this on the threshold of my motion into the new state. I was in my twenties, and as it dissolved and the energy came to me, this radiant creature glowed and glowed almost like the sun in radiance. Then I woke. Here was this creature, and here was this monstrous thing. Now let us take from Scripture these two. We're told in the book of Mark, the eighth chapter, when the blind man's eye was opened, he was asked, What do you see, if anything? And he replied, I see men as trees walking. Verse 24. I see men as trees walking. Now in the fourth chapter of the book of Daniel, 
The king has a vision, and as he lay on his bed, here came the vision of the night. A watcher came down from heaven, a holy one, and gave the command. Hew the tree down, verse 14. It's a tree of life, as we are told in the previous verses of the same chapter. For this tree fed all the world. It housed the birds of the air, it sheltered the animals, and gave food to all flesh. Here comes the command now to hew down the tree, cut off its branches, strip the leaves, scatter its fruit, but leave the stump of the root intact in the earth. And let him, now it changes the pronoun, let him be watered with the dew of heaven. Let him now make his abode with the beast of the field. Let him now be taken, so that the mind of man is taken from him, and the mind of the beast be given to him. And let seven times pass over him, until he learns that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Verses 10-17 through 17. So in the creation of both this wonderful being and this monstrous being, I wore the heart and the mind of a beast, as we all do, couched in these garments of flesh. We all do. This is an animal body. But here, it was a tree that was felled, and yet it becomes man. It was the tree of life. This lady, in her experience, she experienced a tree of life. It radiated and gave life to every object that it touched. But she stood at the gates of Jerusalem, and they were locked, and she couldn't get in, because you can't go through those doors. There's only one way into the citadel, only one way into Zion, only one way into the city of God called Jerusalem. And it's up the water shaft, as told us in the fifth chapter of Second Samuel, verses 6-10. through 10. And David captured the city of Zion by moving up the water shaft, and he built from the outer inward, and yet upward at the same time. Well, the only way I could ever build from the out in and move up at the same time is to build in a spiral. I enter the city of God by a spiral act. Right up, points to the head, for this is the city of God, and this is Zion. I move up my spine, that's how I go up. Man is a fallen tree. Have you ever seen pictures in drug stores or in medical books of man with his skin off, and the entire nervous system and his circulating system exposed, all the veins, all the arteries, all the nerves are reeled? The skin is removed, but the man remains. Isn't that an inverted tree rooted in the brain? Well, now, this tree has to turn up. It does not turn up until you go up the water shaft. Then man, who is now down in generation where all his power is towards generation in this world, sex in the extreme case, then he is lifted up. When he is lifted up, which is called the resurrection, he enters the world or regeneration, where he creates, just as this lady who wrote the letter created. You create not on a divided image. You animate forms with the power that comes out of you. You are life itself, life within you, not going down into generation, but moving up into regeneration. For man in the resurrection is above the organization of sex, Luke 20.35. He creates without a divided image, and all his energies are flowing up. So when men do violence to themselves to bring it about, it's stupid. There are men who will take the vow of celibacy, and there are women who take the vow of celibacy, there are men, you go back into the early church, Origen, possibly the most influential early father of the Christian faith, who lived in the second century. Possibly next to Augustine, he is the most influential. He castrated himself in the hope that he could produce it. You can't produce it, not by any physical violence to yourself. 
not a thing you can do until you are turned around. And it's done by that violent act where you split in two from top to bottom. When that body of yours is split in two, and you see that golden liquid light that went into generation, and you fuse with it, as you behold it, up you go, as David entered the city of God. And there you are. No one can come through that gate, for the entrance is up the water shaft. She saw it perfectly when she saw herself locked on the outside before the wooden gates. But that is only a foreshadowing of that which is in store for her. For she saw it, and she saw the power that is hers. She saw what really is her future, but she will enter up the water shaft. Now we are told in Revelation, And I beheld this new Jerusalem, the city of God, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Revelations 21.2 Well, your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Isaiah 54.5 You are the Maker, and you create this beautiful creature out of every noble act that you have ever done. She is my emanation, yet my wife till the sleep of death is past. Blake. And here is the monstrous thing that is unseen all through one's life until that moment in time when he reaches the threshold and he has to make the decision, will you redeem this energy or not? So he confronts and she confronts you. This is infinite good and that's permanent and this is evil, the embodiment of every unlovely, violent thing one has ever done. And may I tell you, everyone has one, everyone, because he feeds only on violence and whispers into your ear morning and night to violate everything that you would think lovely. We think we are hiding it. It is fattening itself and growing stronger and stronger on it and every violation of your conscience. For we know, every one of us knows, and not one can just simply say, well, I didn't know. He thinks no one sees him. The 37th chapter of the book of Ezekiel. And so they went in their chambers and they said, no one sees me. God doesn't see me. There is no God to see me. Ezekiel 8.12 But I am the God I think that does not see me, and I am seen it, and I am doing it. It's not another God. There is no other God. So God is housed within you. And in this plunge that he took when the tree was felled, he put upon himself the garment of an animal, with the mind of an animal, the heart of an animal, and here he wears it. Now let me share with you this experience of the tree, the walking tree. Man thinks he's going to find it on the outside. Well, Blake, in his wonderful vision, said, and this is from the Songs of Experience, as a friend of mine asked me the other night. This is from the Song of Experience, the Human Abstract. It's the last verse. The gods of the earth and sea sought through nature to find this tree, but their search was all I vain. There grows one in the human brain. Now this night, I would say 15, 16 years ago, I saw this wonderful forest, and I saw these men walking like stags. They were men, but such majesty, antlers, beautiful antlers that would go out of sight, and yet a man carried it. Then I saw a man. He was the third in the Labour government of England, a very controversial figure. He's gone now. In fact, the three of them are gone. Attlee is gone, Bevan is gone, and he is gone. He was a Welchman, and he tried to completely change the whole structure of the economy of England. He disliked heartily the aristocracy. He disliked anything that was to him noble, anything that had wealth. He tried to nationalize all the industries. Well, they really broke England. I wouldn't say nearly broke it. They broke them. 
put steel, coal, all these things into the national setup. Well, I saw him, and he took a tree from the outside, and he put it on his head, and he knew from some tradition that which such power you could take off. Well, he got on a hill, wasn't too high, the height of this, and he jumped and he fell flat on his face. He got up again, put the thing back on, went back up the hill, jumped again, flat on his face. He tried to put it on from without, just as the whole vast world is trying to do by shelling billions into this and billions into that and not changing man. Like someone coming to your home with tar in his hands, filled with tar, and he offers to help you clean the house. I, with unclean hands, would make things clean. That's exactly the whole thing is about. Unless I change the structure of thinking of a man, I can't change this world. I can give him from now to the ends of time everything that I have. And when I stop giving to him, he's going to criticize me for stopping and will not be grateful for anything I give him in the interval. He'll be completely forgetful of anything I gave him. He will simply stop his so-called gratitude, which is nothing more than thought the day I stopped the giving, as happens to nations. You stop today. We've just cut our gifts to the other world 37%. You watch the howl in the world press. If you couldn't keep it up, why did you start it? That's what they're going to tell us. And we think we're going to change the outer world by giving from the outside, and you can't do it. I saw this vision so perfectly. He was one of the most instrumental in changing the economy of England, because he hated the aristocracy. He hated the wealthy. He hated anything that had thought superior to himself scholastically. He hated Churchill, because when they got into commons, they both were able speakers. But Churchill was a master of the English tongue. Churchill could take the three of them and twist them around the finger. Here was Attlee. He was prime minister who got the vote when Churchill, at the end of the war, lost it to Attlee. And that lovely statement he said to Attlee that Attlee was a very, very modest man, and as much to be modest about. Well, I mean, how are you going to argue with men like that? So when this man got up before Churchill, he made a monkey out of him, and he hated him all the more for using his talents of word to make him feel even smaller than he felt inwardly. And he's going to change the entire structure of England on the outside. He hated the power of this land. Although we put them back on their feet, he hated us just because we had the power. Well, I told you, I saw it in a vision. He put the thing on his head, a huge big tree, got on the hill and jumped, fell flat, flat on his face. Didn't believe that, so got back up again. Because someone must have told him this power will lift you up and you can go to the highest mountain. But it didn't come from within. So the gods of the earth and sea sought through nature to find this tree. But their search was all in vain. There grows one in the human brain. It doesn't begin to turn around until the body is split and then you are turned around. And the energies that went into generation are now turned into regeneration. And you leave everyone alone. You don't tell them to emasculate themselves or to sign the vows of celibacy that means nothing. You could be celibate from now to the ends of time and dream of sex all day long and actually have nothing more than a cesspool for a mind. Every lovely girl and every lovely boy who go toward the altar for marriage, they condemn them and say the offspring is sin. Of all the nonsense in the world, then you ask them concerning their own father and mother. So you are now simply the offspring of a sinful act? In other words, you are the embodiment of sin. Of course they'll go into hysterics if you tell them that. So I tell you, you can't bottle it up. It's an energy that is natural as it is turned down. 
and when you least expect it, that body of yours is going to be split, and then the energy will turn out. May I tell you, there is no loss. On this level, you think this is a terrible loss if such a day would ever come. There are men, well, in the First World War, someone brought out the idea of monkey glands, the men who led the Allies into battle, like Clemenceau and Lloyd George and all these old men, who were then pushing eighty or so, and they were subjecting themselves to transplants of monkey glands. No wonder we lost millions of men while these old monkeys played their part. So they sent the men into battle. So what? It's the other fellow who will die. The story they tell of the general, and here it is, this wonderful general who led our armies, and two sergeants are at the door, and they overhear their conversations, because like all the people they think servants and underlings have no ears. At a lovely dinner party they treat the servants as though they're complete morons that can't hear, and they'll discuss anything. The most intimate things in the presence of servants, because they can't hear or see in any way, know what is going on. Well, the generals are discussing the taking of a certain hill, and our general said to the others, It's going to cost me ten thousand men to take that hill, but I'll take it. And one sergeant said to the other, The general is a generous son of a bitch, isn't he? It's going to cost him ten thousand men to take it, but he'll take it. And so when he finally dies at the age of eighty-odd, we give him the most wonderful send-off, this marvelous funeral, and there he is with all the palaver. One day he has to face that monster. Everyone must face the monster that they have created, and everyone will see the ideal, because no one is void of such lovely thoughts known. When you loved your mother, before you could even reason, all that went into this ideal, when you gave not because you had to, but you gave because you wanted to, all of that went into this ideal. I have a friend of mine, and when she died, Kathleen Norris wrote her husband, and she said, You know I have known Clarissa since we were girls in San Francisco, and I have never known a more giving person. Now Clarissa did not have money. She had a modest means, but this is what she meant. She said she never wrote me a letter, but was not enclosed a recipe, a poem, a clipping from a paper, a handkerchief, something she enclosed. I found this recipe, and I tried it out, and it's delightful. I want to share it with you. And so she would send the recipe, she would send the poem, she would send anything she saw in the paper or magazine to Kathleen North, and she said, There was the true giver of this world. Don't wait for Christmas to give, and hope that they'll give you a generous gift as you gave. That's what most people are going to do this Christmas. But you give all through the year. A friend of mine died suddenly Saturday, my oldest friend in California. Met him the first day I arrived, minus my friend Ursula, for I knew her in New York. But outside of Ursula, I met him the first day I got off the train in San Francisco. He was only fifty-three. Now there was a giver. He had so little, and all day long he was giving, giving, giving to everyone. I couldn't request anything. I was embarrassed. I wouldn't voice anything in his presence. He made a mental note, and it came not on occasion like birthdays or Christmas or things of that sort, but any time. Bring it to the door, and he said, a care package. Always some little joke. Well, he was up all week. He was home for dinner the week before. Talked to him the night before. A massive heart attack, and Mort is gone on Saturday. Well, now, there was a giver. What ideal new Jerusalem he has so far built. He hasn't confronted the other. But he will make that decision. Everyone will make it. Because you are the God who created it. And what man has made, he cannot unmake. Anything that is made can be unmade. God is not made, so it cannot be unmade. God in man cannot be unmade because he isn't made. But he's the maker. He makes his new Jerusalem. 
his emanation, yet his wife till the sleep of death is past. But he also makes us hell by his mistaken use of energies. It's all energy, all power, and so one day he confronts the two. He turns to this on his left and stops heeding it and pledges himself, no one else, just himself. I'll redeem it if it takes eternity. But it doesn't take eternity. Right before his eyes, the whole thing before his eyes dissolves. It doesn't take more than a matter of moments. The whole thing simply gets smaller and smaller, and right before his eyes, the whole thing dissolves. And all the energy that it embodied returns to him, and he's infinitely stronger now. That same energy is back now to use wisely, lovingly. So any time you use your imagination lovingly on behalf of another into the glorious ideal, the new Jerusalem you are building, and one day she will descend, prepared as a bride, she's a bride, you're building her out of your noble thoughts. That's why I said to live so that your mind can store a past worthy recall. For the mind whose con contents vanish suffers loss, though he himself cannot be lost, but only through fire will he simply awaken. So live so that all noble thoughts, you can always recall them with joy. But one day, in a twinkle of an eye, you are going to confront this monster. He's ever-present, may I tell you, some act of violence that he may eat. He can't eat otherwise. He can't feed on anything but violence. Can't feed on anything but hate, anything but horror. He is the embodiment of all that, and he can't feed on anything but. So every violent act fattens him, strengthens him, and every noble act beautifies him, and that's your life. So the lady who wrote that perfectly marvelous experience, may I tell you, thank you more than you'll ever know for sharing it with me. She saw the perfect vision. You saw the beautiful imagery of Jerusalem. But the city is a bride, an emanation of beauty that returns, and you become one, and you are infinitely greater as a result of that union. So you emanate both. You dissolve this, and the energy returns to you, and you wed this, not as two, but as one. You leave all and cleave to her, and you become one being. And so you're enhanced in beauty, enhanced in love, enhanced in wisdom, enhanced in power by reason of the journey through here. Even though you did in your mistaken judgment create something, but it wasn't lost, you dissolved it and it came back as energy. Then you unite with this ideal and you are one. So do no violence to these bodies of yours in the hope of entering Jerusalem. See, she went beyond it. She's locked out. She couldn't get in. And she finally finds herself on a hill clothed in a body of light. The light is radiating, and the light is life. She's animating and giving life to every object, and she knows she can change the order of a thing she sees, but also knows in the depth of her soul it is perfectly ordered and should be as it is. Now how to get back and tell us to Neville. So she comes back to tell it to me and struggles through the darkness, limitless depth of utter darkness as she comes to the surface struggling. Now she said, I have been out of my body many times before and seen my body sitting on a chair from which I have departed, but it was no problem in getting back. I was instantly back. But I knew in returning here to the surface, if I could only let go of the memory of the experience, I could go back instantly. But I said, no, I must take it back and tell it to Neville. So the struggle to bring back the memory of the experience took me this seeming forever to come back through the darkness to tell you. It's a perfect vision. The imagery is perfect, the walls of Jerusalem. As Blake said, I give you the end of a golden string. Only wind it into a ball, it will lead you at heaven's gate, built in Jerusalem's wall. That's not the gate. 
The gate is up the shaft that takes you into the citadel where the king dwells. When you go in, you are he. Then all the blind and lame that kept you out before are destroyed. They're not blind people or lame people, but these so-called weak forces were so powerful when you didn't find the way in, and they kept you out while you struggled to find you couldn't go through the door. So the tree spoken of is man. Man is the tree. I have seen them walking. I told it to a friend of mine in San Francisco. She was present. She came to see me at the Palace Hotel, and while waiting for me in the lobby, she said as I came to the door, If you know the palace, it's a very, maybe three or four stories. The entrance is seen very tall and perfectly beautiful, especially when you go into the restaurant, the wonderful Palm Court. She was waiting for me there. Now she said, Neville, I can't explain it, because you are only five foot eleven inches, and even as tall as the ceiling is, and it's a three-story tall. It couldn't contain what I saw when you came through that door. I thought I was seeing a stag with antlers reaching up to the sky. They were like antlers. Now, she didn't describe them in her vision as antlers. She described them in her vision in her letter to me as radiation from every part of her body, making everything alive. But my friend the artist saw this and drew me a picture of it, keeping the same suit as I wore then, and then this something coming out, just like a stag in complete bloom with his antlers, but going beyond the ceiling. Now, she said, how could you come through that revolving door and still wear these antlers? Yet that's what I saw. It's not of this world. So when I told the story, not her story, but told my experience with this vision of mine, of that third in importance in the Labour Party of England, one lady said, Of course, Neville, I think you're going all out now. I mean, this is getting too far. You're turning my daily bread into the substance of fairy. So I don't think she ever came back. She didn't want me to discuss such things because it disturbed her. If I could give her some little tiny technique concerning tomorrow and how to treat the one she disliked in the office, well, you can do that too. I do that. I don't admit that, but that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to fulfill the word of God. My word shall not return unto me void. It must accomplish that which I purpose and prosper in the thing for which I sent it. And so I have sent you the word, that is, you sent yourself, because the Father is in you, and he is playing the part. But he did cut himself down, and having just the trunk, just the roots, and let now the dew of heaven water him, put bands of iron around him, and then he will grow and reach the skies, reach the heavens. And the birds will come, this time it is a better, stronger tree. It will nest in the tree, and fruit will be all nations, all flesh, and shade, everything that lives. That's what we are told in Daniel, and you are the tree, you are the tree of life. Now these things were given to me the other night, on Friday night, so fast. I had about five or six of them, and I was trying to say something to two friends, who are not here tonight. They're off to meet their daughter flying in from New York, and I'm not quite sure which lady it was. If you're here tonight, hold up your hand, the one who gave me this experience. Thank you very much. Because it all came this way, and I didn't know. I had so many when I got home. But may I tell you, my dear, it's perfectly heavenly experience and true just as you described it. You went beyond that interval, that dark, dark interval between that marvelous world of life and this is where the tree is felled. You brought it back in the most perfect manner, so I want to thank you. So the tree. Don't look for any tree on the outside. The tree of life is not in some little garden on the outside. You are the garden of God. You are the one when the eye is open. You'll see men and those who are awake, just like trees walking. But you will see what I saw. You'll see men who are not awake, 
know nothing of Scripture, not interested, who think they can put it on from without and rule the world. So let them try. They come to that inevitable, the only certainty in the world, death, and they'll find themselves reclothed this here in a section of time just like this, best suited for the work yet to be done on them. They'll keep on building and building, feeding both the good and evil until the day that they confront them, and they'll make the decision to resolve and dissolve this monster. I'm telling you the thrill that goes through you because the minute you seriously mean it, no one is here to hear your pledge. It's all done within yourself. If it takes me eternity, I will redeem you. At that very moment, it becomes nothing right before your eyes. But all the energy is returning to you, and you become stronger and stronger as it comes back to you. That's the energy you simply misuse in the building of that monster. That dweller on the threshold who is not far away... He's always present whispering violence, always ready to get you into trouble because he thrives on your trouble. The other always thrives on every good fortune of a noble, lovely character. Now, let us go into the silence. You are listening to Neville Goddard Radio with your host, Barry Peterson. <laughs> 